Last Sunday, we talked about dangerous Christianity. We talked about the fact that many of us grew up in a faith or a practice of faith that, that today is sincere but safe. It's committed but not fanatical. It's courageous but not bold. Then we saw how the followers of Jesus were prepared for the coming of this dangerous Christianity. They were in unity. They had one purpose and they were together with a group. They had an expectancy. They expected because Jesus said, this is going to happen. So they were expecting something dramatic to happen. And then they had emptiness. In other words, they weren't full of themselves. They were saying, we're empty. We're waiting for God to do something because we cannot do anything. They were empty in the sense of them being aware that they cannot live their Christian life on their own. And us in the same way, saying, I cannot live this Christian life on my own, in my own strength. And when I talk about dangerous Christianity, I mean power to make a difference. Dangerous in the, in the fact that there's, it's a threat to complacency, a threat to the status quo, a threat to the ordinary, a threat to the evil around us a threat to the kingdom of darkness that we live in. This dangerous Christianity began with some visible manifestations. There was this, this wind that came, tongues of fire and verbal tongues. And then some things that, that we didn't see, these are invisible manifestations. There was a passion, there was a boldness, and there was a power. And then we read the verbal imagery of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. They were immersed in the Holy Spirit. They were filled. They were saturated. They were soaked with God. Soaked with God. And the purpose of this power wasn't so they could enjoy a great time together in the presence of God. They were immediately tasked with giving the proclamation, relevant proclamation to people around them, giving real evidence. It was the restoration of relationship with God. And they were given a brand new mission. And that's what God has given us, a renewed mission. A renewed mission. We talked about some guidelines. Because when we read about something in the Bible, we want that to happen to us. And basically, number one, seek God, not an experience. Because this was a dramatic experience. Seek the giver, not a gift. Be open, be honest, and be balanced. And today we're going to move from dangerous Christianity to the dangerous church. The dangerous church. What happened next on the day God showed up? This is our legacy. This is who we are to be. This is what God has given us as a vision of what the church is to be. Dangerous Christianity and the dangerous church. And I'd like us to, to read about it in Acts 2. Acts 2, we're going to read verses 37 to 47. 37 to 47 in Acts 2. It says, when the people heard this, they were cut to, to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. That's us, okay? That's us. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted this message were baptized and about 3,000 were added that day to their number. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone is filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to everyone as they had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Verse 37 begins with a statement, when the people heard this, okay, they had seen this outpouring of the Spirit. What does it mean they heard this? What had they heard? They had just heard a sermon preached by Peter. We're not going to look at the exact sermon, but we're going to look at the content of his sermon. Remember Peter? Peter was so bold he denied Jesus three times after being asked by a servant girl who he was. Peter was the guy who got out of the boat to walk in the water, then panicked two steps and went down. Okay? Peter, all talk and no courage, Peter. Now, now Peter is a preacher. Something changed Peter. Someone changed Peter, the Holy Spirit. Now his sermon was short. You probably wish I'd preach one this short, but it was a, it's a pretty short, pretty short sermon. It's five points we find in verses 14 to 36. The first part of the sermon is Jesus lived. Jesus lived. He performed miracles, signs, and wonders, proving to you all that he was God. He was preaching the people in Jerusalem who had seen what Jesus had done. And if they hadn't seen, they had exactly heard. They had heard all these things that Jesus had done. They knew that Jesus was a real person and he had lived. Then he said, Jesus died. With God's purpose and foreknowledge, he says, he was handed over you to the Jews and the Romans murdered him. Said this was part of God's plan. They all knew that Jesus had lived. They all knew that he had died. What they weren't sure about is what he declared to them next, number three, Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus was raised from the dead. The most incredible claim. But they had seen him. They had eaten with him. They had been with him. And they said, Jesus was raised from the dead. And then he said, uh, number four, he said, Jesus is exalted. In other words, Jesus went back to heaven and is now sitting on the throne at the right hand of God the Father. And the fifth point of his sermon was, you have just now seen and heard the Holy Spirit's work, the results. So Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus was raised from the dead, Jesus is exalted, and he sent his Holy Spirit to empower us. That is the gospel, the good news. That message, those five points, were repeated over and over in the book of Acts by Peter, by Paul, by Silas, and Philip, all the followers of Jesus. This was 
the message. Jesus lived, Jesus died, he was raised from the dead, he's exalted, and he sent his Holy Spirit to empower us, to make a difference in our lives. That is the message of the dangerous church, right there. If you can remember five things, just five things, that is our message. Jesus lived, he died, he was resurrected. That's part of the message. Now the people responded. The Holy Spirit came down on him and the, Holy, the, the people responded and they said, what shall we do? And Peter answers, here's the deal. This is how you are to respond. He said that to them. And this is how we are to respond today. This account demonstrates what the first church was all about. What was it like? What was the dangerous church? We are the legacy if we can just grasp the fact that we are the continuation of that. Today in Eau Claire, not just us, but every church that preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. Millions and millions of people all throughout the world. We are the church that carries this legacy. There are seven characteristics of the dangerous church. Seven characteristics. What can we learn? The first characteristic is something called effective evangelism. Effective evangelism. Evangelism is the process of bringing unbelieving people to faith in Jesus Christ so they can have the same life transformation that they've experienced. Bringing people into a relationship with Jesus Christ so they can know and experience what we've experienced. A changed life. The process includes pre-evangelism all the way through reproduction. We looked at that uh, three weeks ago. And we'll look at it again as we go through. So what we see here is effective evangelism. They had results. It says, Peter preaches a sermon. The Holy Spirit produced those words, empowered those words, and those words went right to the hearts of the people. Verse 37 said they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. What does that mean? What does that mean they were cut to the heart? Cut to the heart expresses the first step in effective evangelism. The first of four steps. We want to have effective evangelism. There are four steps that have to happen. And this first step was conviction. Conviction. It says they were cut to the heart. It means to pierce or to sting. And when God the Holy Spirit shows up, dangerous Christianity produces conviction. Conviction. The Jews have been waiting for centuries for their promised Messiah. He shows up. They don't, don't recognize him. They reject him. They kill him. Now they're guilty of unbelief, rejection, and murder. And when Peter preached this sermon, they knew. They were guilty. And they knew it. It's a word we don't see very often. It's called conviction. Conviction. One of the major obstacles to effective evangelism today is a lack of conviction. Conviction. We've spent the last 50 years allowing absolute truth to be reduced to subjective opinion so we can get rid of guilt. We don't want people to, to deal with guilt, so we kind of relieve them of guilt. There's no absolute truth, no absolute right, no absolute wrong. My truth, your truth, my right, my wrong. 
No standards with which to evaluate anything. That's why we went through God's top ten in the fall. Knowing what God's standards are and his relational parameters so that we understand. Because when we fall short of that, we should be hit with conviction. And our school systems have been so obsessed with evaluating, elevating self-esteem, they've eliminated any objective truth or measure of actual achievement. No absolutes, no standards. Postmodernism lets every individual decide for themselves what's right and what's wrong. We violate no principle, therefore there's no conviction. In the church today, we, like everywhere else, it's all about toleration, tolerance. We tolerate all kinds of evil. We call it love or tolerance. Tolerance is not love. Tolerance says, I don't care what you do. I tolerate whatever you do. You can do whatever you want. Love says, no. Love is not tolerance. Love says, I care. Because what we do, what we think, our actions make a difference in our lives. Tolerance. If you went to public school, a state university... The highest goal of the godless state school system has been and continues to be to undermine absolute truth and elevate tolerance as the highest and greatest good of all human virtues. Which means I don't care what you do, it can be destructive behavior, it can destroy your family, it can destroy your moral values, destroy your body, it can destroy all that. It's tolerance and they teach that. There's no conviction because we brainwashed, we've been brainwashed with tolerance. We call it love and tolerance. And what we tolerate, God calls sin. Sin. Now, not only did the sin of the Jews cause Jesus to die, it was our sin too. So we can't, don't point fingers. It was our sin that caused Jesus to die. He died for the sins of the entire world, the entire universe for all time. Our sin. There is objective truth. There are standards. There's right and there's wrong. And when we do wrong, we should deal with it. Conviction. Now, we, we should not be the ones who are trying to convict people of sin. Okay? Sometimes we get on a high horse and we want to point at people and start pointing fingers and, and saying, I'm going to, you know, we start trying to convict people. We are not the one who brings conviction. It's the Holy Spirit. John 16, 7 and 8. Jesus is speaking. He says, but I tell you the truth it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. And one of the things we've got to understand is that the dangerous church produces conviction. Conviction. Dangerous Christianity produces conviction. Without conviction, we don't see any need for a Savior. It says, these people were convicted. They were cut to the heart. And they said, what should we do? The second step in evangelism, effective evangelism, is repentance. Peter says in verse 38, repent. What does repent mean? Based on conviction of where I am, it means to turn around, to reverse direction, a 180 degree change. Change your mind, change your life. Dangerous Christianity produces a radical change in individual lives, resulting in radical changes in our families, 
in our churches, our cities, our entire society. Repent for forgiveness of your sins. Conviction leads to repentance and leads to forgiveness. And he said to these people, good news, newsflash, it's not too late. You rejected the Messiah. You killed the Messiah. But he said there's still a chance. There's still a chance. For us today, it's a newsflash, good news. And there's no sin that we can commit that God will not forgive. There's no sin that that we can commit that God will not forgive. God forgives all sin, and it's never too late. He says, repent, believe in your heart. Jesus is the way to salvation. This is the preparation for the next step of effective evangelism. It's called initiation. You have conviction, repentance, and initiation, which in this case is baptism. He says, repent and be baptized. They're always found together. Always found together. Baptism is a public profession of faith. It's a statement, I believe. I believe. It's an outward demonstration of an inward transformation. And I know there are a lot of different beliefs about baptism. Should be done infant baptism, adult baptism, believer baptism. And let me just say this. If, if you believed since you were a child and you came to faith and you've never been baptized, you need to be baptized. You need to be baptized. Repent and be baptized. It's an initiation that he does. It's a demonstration of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if, you, if you've never been baptized, I'll give you a chance to respond to this. On the connection card, you can indicate, and if you say, Pastor, I'd like to be baptized, we can have a baptism service. We roll in the baptistry right here, fill it with water, warm water, just so you know. I almost fell in it once, but that's okay. We fill it with warm water, and we baptize. It's part of the initiation. It's what he said. He said, repent and be baptized. It wasn't this optional thing. And if you've never been baptized, you need to be baptized. We'll talk more about that as we move forward. Peter said Jesus lived, died, and was raised again. And he said you need to identify with his death, burial, and resurrection. Break with the old and up with the new. We, we say publicly, I'm in. On, on the basis of your repentance, he says, you can be baptized in Jesus' name for the forgiveness of sins which they had received. How important is baptism? How important? Well, it's, it's part of the part of the formula. It's part of what Jesus said to do. Now, my, my parents were missionaries in Japan. I was born there and lived my childhood, some of my childhood, early childhood in Japan. And what they discovered in Japan, because they, they planted churches and they, they found in Japan, many people came to church. Many of them wanted to be Christians, but many would not take the step of being baptized. Why? Why? Because by being baptized, they would have to break with their old religion, Buddhism, and Shintoism and declare for Jesus. And the result of that step, many of them, when they took it, were disowned by their family. See, they had religions that said they have to pray for their their dead relatives, and if you become a Christian, you don't do that anymore, so you don't know what's going to happen to your dead relatives. Buddhism, Shintoism, Spiritism, all those things. 
they, some just would not follow. A public profession of faith. And the question is, if you are ready, have you been baptized? Be initiated. Now, the fourth step in effective evangelism is empowerment. Empowerment, the gift of the Holy Spirit. He said, following this, you've repented, you've been baptized, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God will fill you, baptize you, surround you, soak you with himself. And again, we have a very limited understanding of how revolutionary this statement was. Because in the Old Testament, before this time, the Holy Spirit was only available to a select few at a certain time. And God would choose who he's going to anoint. We talked about Samson, King David, Saul, and some of those. says the Holy Spirit came on them and whatever. But he hadn't come on everybody, which meant how did they live this empowered life without the Holy Spirit? And in verse 39, Peter says the promise is for you and your children and all who are far off. In the Old Testament, God lived in and among his people. In Acts, God lives in his people. It's in you. This is you. If you've received Jesus Christ, ask him to forgive your sins, come into life. The Holy Spirit lives inside. Inside. That's us. It's the dangerous church. Conviction. Repentance, initiation, and empowerment. Second characteristic of the dangerous church is wonders and miraculous signs. We find in verse 33 and 43, it says, everyone is filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. God showed up, God was at work. These are things that are obviously God's intervening in the normal course of events. You pray and God answers. It works. You have a need, God fills it. You're sick, God heals you. You have an addiction, God delivers you. You're depressed, God gives you a new start. You need a job, God gives you one. Someone is demonized, they're delivered. We actually see this supernatural power of God released. That's his purpose for the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's what he wants. We're going to talk more about wonders and miracles and signs as we go. All through the book of Acts, signs occur and they all point to God. God is still doing signs and wonders today. Amazing stories. Amazing things. Third characteristic of the dangerous church. Bible teaching. Verse 42 says, The church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, not just any teaching, but the apostles' teaching of the word of God. Much of their teaching is recorded throughout the New Testament. The 3,120 followers of Jesus had had an incredible experience with God, but there's a safety factor. It's called the Word of God. It's called the Word of God. And I have this in your notes. Subjective experience must have scriptural basis. Subjective experience must have scriptural basis. The dangerous church must not only be experiential, it must be scriptural. Okay? Now, subjectively, now, we are not an experience-centered church. We are a word-centered church. However, we cannot just have an intellectual interaction with information. 
We have to have an interaction with the person of God. The, the, the Word of God documents and validates our experience. That's the importance where we have the Word of God is primary in our experience. Our experiences are subjective. How do we, they know we're with God, of God. The Bible, the Word, gives us guidelines. So the dangerous church must not only be experiential, it must be scriptural, not either or, but both in. And I dare say that many churches and many people who believe in Christ, their, their relationship with God is only word-based, and it's, they haven't experienced God. They believe all these things in their head, but it's never gone to the heart. And that's one of the dangers of intellectual Christianity. There is amazing information in this, what we call the Bible. But it also has to, we have to experience a, a relationship with God. And that's what's missing for a lot of people. How do you know if your faith is legitimate? Your experience valid? It's the Bible. The Bible is our standard for faith and practice. The Bible is God's breathed, it's God's word, it reveals. The fourth characteristic of the dangerous church is genuine community. Genuine community. This is described by phrases like devoted themselves to fellowship, breaking of bread, they had everything in common, they ate together in homes. The dangerous church is not a group to join. It's a fellowship of God's spirit in which we participate. Let me say that again. It's not a group to join. It's a fellowship of God's spirit in which we participate. It's a common life, common life. When we have a common life in Jesus, we're family. We share. Sharing is a natural outgrowth of this community. They took care of one another's needs. Your need is my need. Their possessions existed for the common good. Now, a couple of cautions here. This was not communism, and it wasn't communal life. This was not everybody moving to Chippewa Falls to live in a commune together. That's, that's not what we're talking about. Many of experiment with communes have failed. We've seen that. In fact, I'm not aware of any communes that have succeeded. All of these 3,120 people did not live in the same house or commune. They did not give up the principle of private ownership or private homes. They still lived out there. This is more of an expression of unity. You have a need, I have the ability to fill that need. Fellowship, eating together, sharing in homes. All of these expressions of genuine community. They really loved and cared for one another. Some people will say, and I've heard a lot of people say this, you know, I, I can be a Christian and not be part of a local church. I can be a Christian, I just don't have to go to church and be part of a local church. Um, no, you cannot. You cannot. You can assent to a set of propositional beliefs and truth and claim Christianity, but without community, you're just a wandering body part, disconnected from the whole. I have people tell me all the time, I, I can be a Christian, I don't, need, I don't need anybody else, I don't need the church. No. Community is essential. Connection. If there's no connection, there's no usefulness. And when people around us see that we love each other, we practice real community, they will say, you know what? I, I want to be part of that community. They, they love each other. One of the 
one of the things that I hear more often than not, all the time, from people who come and visit this church. They visit out of town, they come from the community. I sense love in that church. You love people. And they know it. They say there's love in that church. They love everybody. They love people. Kudos to you. They sense that there's love in this place. A foundation. This highlights, of course, the importance of connect groups. We're talking about that since we're signing up. Connect groups help us with connection. To implement community so everyone has an opportunity. Sunday morning is great. It serves a purpose of worship, teaching, and some level of fellowship around food. But Sunday morning does not allow for the kind of community and sharing of needs each of us has. Now, caution. This is a different world from then. They did not have, back then, they didn't have food banks, homeless shelters, treatment centers like Hope Gospel Mission, which we actively support. We cannot, we're not equipped in this church to minister to all those needs. Homelessness is a complex set of issues most churches are not equipped to deal with. In fact, Chris Headland wrote a book based on that premise, saying that basically these are all the causes of homelessness and shows that it's not just getting houses. It's a complex set of issues. And of course, we're not equipped in the church to handle that, but we support ministries that do ministry in that capacity. Love one another. The fifth characteristic of the dangerous church, fervent prayer. Prayer was part of the fabric of this first church. Prayer isn't a ministry. Prayer is the ministry. Prayer isn't to be a program. It's to be permeative. Intercessory prayer means to pray on behalf of someone else because our battle is not against flesh and blood. Prayer, to be part of the church. We'll talk more about prayer as we work our way through. The sixth characteristic of a dangerous church is corporate worship. You say, oh good, I got, I'm, I'm here. I made it today. Okay. It says they, at verse 46, they met together in temple courts. And one thing that we've talked about in the past is the concept of establishing a beachhead of worship in Eau Claire. A beachhead of worship and how important that is. A beachhead is a military term used for the establishing of a presence. When, when the Allied forces invaded France during World War II at Normandy, their first priority was to establish a beachhead. They stormed the coast and established themselves firmly on shore. Once they had that beachhead, they could transport personnel, equipment, weapons, and supplies. A beachhead is a base of further operations. It's not the end, it's just the beginning. It's the beginning. By worshiping God corporately, we are establishing a beachhead of the presence of the living God in Eau Claire. The presence of God then emanates further and further each week in the spiritual realm. When we worship God, we are here to worship God. Satan is allergic to praise. God inhabits our praise, the Bible says. As we lift God in praise and worship, Satan and the darkness are driven back. By worship, we establish God's presence, God's authority, God's beachhead. Worship 
is one of the most powerful spiritual weapons we have. Worship must be alive from the heart, vibrant, enthusiastic. It can be noisy. It can be quiet. It can be any music style. But it must be passionate because we're entering the presence of the living God. We're not having a song service. Okay? We're worshiping the living God. Entering into his presence, establishing a beachhead from which to launch ministry to people. That's why we have two primary elements on Sunday morning. We have worship and the word. Worship and the word. This isn't a context to display musical talents or gifts. It's not an outlet for special music. This is serious business. This is worshiping the living God. And the final seventh characteristic of the dangerous church is constant growth. Constant growth. Verse 47 says, The Lord added to their numbers daily those who are being saved. Now, those who don't think God cares about numbers have never read the book of Acts. People say, we want quality, not quantity. We want both. Some people say, I, you know, I, I, I want to be a part of a small church. I want to know everybody. Well, the first church in existence started with 3,000 people. Did large numbers keep them from fellowship or community? No. They met large groups in worship, and they met in small groups from house to house. And they grew daily. The dangerous church is a growing church. People are attracted to life. They're attracted to joy, love. They're attracted to Jesus. And the natural outgrowth of all those characteristics is growth. People want to come. It's contagious. Now, the church grows in three different ways, mainly. We have biological growth, which is growing by having babies. There's transfer growth, people coming from outside of communities. And there's evangelism, which is brand new believers. All of this growth in Acts was brand new believers because it was the beginning of the church. Dangerous Christianity produced by the Holy Spirit brought about the dangerous church and effective evangelism, wonders and signs, Bible teaching, community, fervent prayer, corporate worship, and constant growth. These ordinary people, and make no bones about it, these were ordinary people, became change agents for the entire world when they were filled with the power of God, the Holy Spirit. Let's be the church. And if we're going to be the church, let's be the dangerous church. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us history, a guideline, what's going on. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you, by your grace and strength, you would anoint us with your Holy Spirit by your grace. In Jesus' name.